Now, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 22 and Romans chapter 5. Exodus chapter 22 is on page 65 in the Bible in the P-Rack in front of you, and Romans chapter 5 is on page 1000. Pretty simple to remember there. This week, I'm going to do the same thing that I did last week because we're going to be covering a, uh, an extensive amount of verses in Exodus, all of chapter 22, the first nine verses of chapter 23. And so instead of standing and reading all of that together, we're going to read a New Testament passage to which I will refer at the end, and it will help us kind of bring everything together as we go. So by now, I hope you've found those two passages, and if you found Romans 5, we're going to stand and read Romans 5 together this morning, verses 6 through 11. So will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Paul writes, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us that while we were enemies, You reconciled us. While we were still sinners, you died for us. You sent Jesus to pay the price to satisfy your wrath towards sin and justice. We thank you for your word. We ask now that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Justice is blind. So the saying goes. Of course, the picture there is that justice is impartial, supposed to be, not given to favoritism of the poor or the wealthy, or perhaps even favoring one's own inclinations to skew justice for oneself, as we are often inclined to do. In today's walk through the book of the covenant in Exodus chapter 22, we're going to see a number of case laws that were intended to teach the people of Israel the importance of justice being done in a variety of circumstances without partiality being shown. And yet, while we consider the justice of God and his law, we are also going to see glimpses of the compassion God has for vulnerable people, which he says should remind the people of Israel of the position they were in as resident aliens in the land of Egypt. So let's walk through more of the book of the covenant beginning today in chapter 22 and verse 1, where we see laws, first of all, in your outline about a cow thief, (laughs) a cow thief. 
in verses 1 through 4. Look at verse 1 with me. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox or four sheep for the sheep. This reminded me of the great Andy Griffith episode called Cow Thief, right? Like, uh, have you seen this one where the guy, he sneaks in and he's stealing a cow and he actually puts shoes on the four hooves of the cow, all right? And that, when he's walking away and the cow's behind him, it makes six, you know, six prints, three sets of prints. And so the, the police think they need to find a gang of criminals that are stealing cows in Mayberry. Of course, this is a red herring because it's only one criminal. And of course, Andy Griffith has the smarts to see that the footprints seem to always follow in a line. <laughs> they seem to follow directly behind the main guy. And Andy catches the criminal with good old-fashioned common sense. Now, despite the fact that that silly episode only took place a few decades ago, we know that as a modern society, we have moved a long way away from an agricultural society in the main. Yes, my wife and Judah have to live with this all the time. The county fair notwithstanding... All right. In general, modern Americans reading passages like this are wondering, why are people so hung up about an ox? Like, what's the big deal about a sheep being taken? Well, that's because an ox was a man's primary tool for work. It'd be like taking somebody's tractor. You can't do that. And it, it took years to train beasts of burden to be able to be reliable. And they were very difficult to replace. By way of a comparison that I thought of, it's somewhat like my friend Nigel, who had all of his expensive tools stolen from the back of his truck. And as a tradesperson, he couldn't work because his tools were gone. And so he was not only out something valuable to him, he was out the means to make a living. Do you see? He posted this picture on Facebook when it all happened, he covered up the hole in the back of his window where the glass was with a piece of cardboard, and he wrote with a sharpie on it. And if you can't read that far, it says, Dear thieves, other thieves have already stolen my tools and my valuables. Please get a job, get a life, and leave me alone. Yours truly, an honest, hardworking father of three kids trying to provide for his family. And he proceeded to write a song called, There's a Piece of Cardboard Where My Window Used to Be. <laughs> it was really funny, but I didn't have time to share that with you this morning. So listen, if the thief of the tools of my friend had been caught and this kind of law was in effect, not only would Nigel have his tools back, but he would have extra money to compensate for his loss of wages. That is justice. Read on with me in verses 2 through 4. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he is beaten to death, no one is guilty of bloodshed. But if this happens after sunrise, the householder is guilty of bloodshed. A thief must make full restitution. If he is unable, he is to be sold because of his theft. If what was stolen, whether ox, donkey, or sheep, is actually found alive in his possession, he must repay double. And the basic concept here is restitution restitution, not jail time. Now, while our system of justice has a lot to be commended in it, 
there does tend to be a lack of justice for victims of theft, especially when restitution is not involved. Another thing to note, just briefly, is the provision of personal protection at night, even even allowing the use of deadly force. But then notice also the value of every human life, including the thieves, during the day. You see, the difference there was that at night, it's hard to judge a person's motives. You're discombobulated, you wake up, you can't see what's going on, you can't know. But in the daytime, you might be able to call for help, you might be able to seek another way of defending yourself, or look for a different way out of the situation, showing the value of every human's life. We move on now to verses 5 and 6, which I'm calling garden woes. (laughs) Garden woes. I call them that because after having our first garden and now experiencing for the first time what cleanup looks like after your garden is finished, I can sort of understand what's happening here. All right, read with me in verse 5. When a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed in and then allows his animals to go and graze in someone else's field, he must repay with the best of his own field or vineyard. When a fire gets out of control, spreads to thorn bushes, and consumes stacks of cut grain, standing grain, or a field, the one who started the fire must make full restitution for what is burned. Now again, uh, after a harvest, you have a mess to clean up, and there were basically two ways of doing this. One would be let your animals loose in the field to kind of clean up the vegetation. I hear goats are good at that, by the way. And then the other way to do this is to set fire to your things, which is what I wanted to do with my cucumber vines when they were done. (laughs) But this is not generally uh, safe in a close community. So if you're going to do this, like if you're going to let your cow go loose or your animals go loose to clean up your garden or your your harvest, if it goes into other people's property, you got to take care of them. And the same thing with the fire. If it gets out of hand and starts taking other people's property, then you need to make it right. The principle, what we're looking for of justice here is very clear. And Bible students of all ages need to hear this today. One needs to take responsibility for their own actions, even if it results in unintended consequences. So own up to your accidents. Just own up to them. Tell the truth. Make it right. That is what justice looks like. Moving right along, we come to another section about personal property. I've called this section creatively, Shakespeare was mistaken. Shakespeare was mistaken. You will know the phrase, neither a borrower nor a lender be, right? I remember hearing this early on in my ministry. At first blush, Shakespeare's advice seems relatively cogent. It seems good. But in reality, we all live in community, don't we? We all live with other people around us. Neighbors, family, and friends will often borrow things from other people, which reminds me, Brother Mark, by the way, happy birthday, and I haven't forgotten I have your tomato cages. Um, Brother Greg Corrick, yes, I still have your aerator thing. I will get it back to you. And Brother Joe, uh, I haven't forgotten that I have your tiller, and I will return it in good condition. So while Shakespeare was mistaken... I believe there are some general principles that need to be applied when we are in possession of other people's belongings. Okay, that's what these verses are about. Look with me in verses 7 through 15. When a man gives his neighbor valuables or goods to keep, but they are stolen from that person's house, the thief, if caught, must repay double. 
If the thief is not caught, the owner of the house must present himself to the judges to determine whether or not he has taken his neighbor's property. In any case of wrongdoing involving an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or anything else lost, and someone claims, that's mine, the case between the two parties is to come before the judges. The one the judges condemn must repay double to his neighbor. Verse 10. When a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to care for, but it dies, is injured, or is stolen while no one is watching, there must be an oath before the Lord between the two of them to determine whether or not he has taken his neighbor's property. Its owner must accept the oath, and the other man does not have to make restitution. But if, in fact, the animal was stolen from his custody— he must make restitution to its owner. If it was actually torn apart by a wild animal, he is to bring that evidence to the person, and he doesn't have to make restitution for the torn carcass. Verse 14. When a man borrows an animal from his neighbor and it is injured or it dies while its owner is not there with it, the man must make full restitution. If its owner is there with it, the man does not have to make restitution. If it was rented, the loss is covered by the rental price. Okay, let me just summarize a few thoughts and move on today for the sake of time. Basically, if you borrow something, it's your responsibility to get it back in equal or better condition than the way you borrowed it. And if not, you should pony up a few bucks and make things right. That's the principle behind all of this. Sometimes it's impossible to know if you're getting hustled by your neighbor. You in good faith sent something to them. It never makes it back. That's dealt with here. Basically, scripture says, in essence, take your neighbor's word for it until you have decisive evidence to the contrary. Common sense thoughts like this can help petty little things from becoming a big feud across your fence. It's a thing. So you use this kind of approach. And I suppose if you're not going to take the Bible's approach, then Shakespeare is what's left for you. Don't be a borrower or a lender. But frankly, I wouldn't have a garden this year if it wasn't for the kindness of people who would lend things to me. So I'm grateful for the provision to care for one another and to share things, but we need to return things in the working condition we found them. All right, moving on from laws about personal property, the next two verses could seem a little bit out of place, but they actually have a lot to do, more to do with uh, potential financial loss than it might seem at first. So it's kind of keeping in this theme of uh, finances and theft and things like that. I've called this section not so fast, young man. Not so fast, young man. And before I read this, I want to make very clear that when we get to verses 16 and 17, this was not a case of rape. If it had been rape, then the man who committed the crime would have been punishable by death. That's clear in Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27, according to the laws given to Israel at the time. But there is some social context that will help us understand when we start reading verses 16 and 17. The Grace and Truth NIV Study Bible explains it like this. Normally, a prospective husband would give a betrothal gift to the potential bride's father. 
And what this provided was financial security for the bride if her husband ended up abandoning her. Loss of virginity by a young woman could reduce the value of a betrothal gift that she might expect in the future to receive for her future security. That's what's at stake when we talk about this. All right, so with those two things in mind, let's read verses 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money, that is the the man that seduced the virgin, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And the bride price was not just in place for the peace of mind of the bride, it also would serve as a cooling mechanism for that young man's passions, so that he would take seriously the kind of lifelong commitment that he would be making in marriage. Not so fast, young man. Your physical passions might be one thing, But have you considered how you will care for your beloved spiritually, emotionally, and financially as well? While a young man was under her, excuse me, while a young woman was under her father's provision and under his protection, that father had an interest in making sure whoever was interested in his daughter was the kind of guy that could provide for her in all of those various ways. And so, frankly, a young man that had gone off on the wrong foot by doing this sort of thing uh, would have been scorning the woman's value and going around the standard practice of demonstrating commitment to that woman. And a father might decide, the provision is here, a father might say, you know what, I'm not going to give my daughter to that kind of young man. But since she had lost her virginity, There could be no expectation of receiving the full bride price in the future, so the man that seduced her had to make things right financially. That's what's happening. Now, one more quick word while we're on the topics of premarital sex, dads, and marriages, okay? You following? I know this is pertinent, so let's listen. Douglas Stewart writes in his commentary, Neither here nor in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 does the Bible direct that people who have had sexual intercourse without the benefit of marriage must go on to marry. The two becoming one one flesh sexually is not regarded as an actual marriage in God's sight, and no biblical ethic demands that they make their virtual marriage, for lack of a better term, legal by actually marrying. In other words, Shotgun weddings are not biblical, not necessarily. And I will also add this. The sin of premarital sex does not mean a Christian young man or young woman should think that they are somehow obligated to commit any further sin as a, natu- as a natural consequence of the first sin. Because you've had sex once does not mean you are free to commit further fornication or to live together before marriage with your sexual partner because you've had a child, or that you should be unequally yoked with an unbeliever in marriage because you had sex one time. Okay? Capiche? All right. Not so fast, young men. Now, if you thought that section was a little uncomfortable, (laughs) the next few verses deal with some big-time no-no's. And I don't say that facetiously to downplay. These are, big, these are a big deal. They were capital crimes. Verse 18 says, Do not allow a sorceress to live, 
Whoever has sexual intercourse with an animal must be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any gods except the Lord alone is to be set apart for destruction. Now, to summarize these already succinct laws, capital crimes that are listed here were all examples, just three, of the many kinds of wicked practices that would pull people away from worshiping Yahweh alone, from worshiping God alone. Whether that meant indulging in the pagan practice of bestiality or the wicked consultation of mediums or even offering sacrifices to other gods, all three of these perverse abandonments of the covenant relationship with Yahweh were big-time no-nos that were explicitly forbidden by God and at that time punishable by death. Continue with me to verses 21 through 27, where we observe that compassion matters to God. Compassion matters to God. Though God would show zero tolerance for anyone who would lead someone away from worshiping him, and what would make that community unique? Because they were all supposed to be in covenant with him. God also demonstrates extraordinary compassion for vulnerable people and commands that his people protect vulnerable people as well. So pick up with me in verse 21 through 27. You must not exploit a resident alien or oppress him, since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me, and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. If you lend silver to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him. You must not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset, for it is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen, because I am gracious. Now, we've already kind of picked up on this, this kind of concept in the law about the bride price. But the absence of a husband or a father would leave a woman or a child in a place where they could be exploited by other people. And there was no government welfare system for the people of Israel. So it was the responsibility of the covenant community, each and every one of them, to assume responsibility and care for those who had been left vulnerable without a father or a husband. And did you notice how the language of these verses shifts ever so slightly? God himself says, he will hear them. He says, I will hear when they cry out to me. And my anger, God says, will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Not mincing words in the book of the covenant. God becomes the avenger of the fatherless and the widow. He has grace and compassion for the neighbor who is so poor he can't even give you his cloak as a pledge because that's all he literally has. Let him sleep with his blanket tonight. He cares about that. God's compassion is on full display and he expects his people to show care and concern for people who are in a place that they cannot legitimately earn a wage to help themselves. 
But notice, not only that compassion amongst his people matters to God, but respect and dignity also matter to God. Respect matters to him. God's people are to show honor where honor is due and to live in a dignified way. Read with me in verses 28 through 31. You must not blaspheme God or curse a leader among your people. You must not hold back offerings from your harvest or your vats. Give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your flock. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but on the eighth day you are to give them to me. Be my holy people. You must not eat the meat of a mauled animal found in the field. Throw it to the dogs. Again, the Israelites are to respect people in authority, including God himself. They are to express that respect by being generous to him. And at Passover, when God had redeemed and ransomed his people, all the firstborn males were said to have belonged to God. And so he requires that they commit the firstborn to him. Ultimately, God's desire for his people, you read this in verse 31, is that they would be a holy people and a holy Nation, And so they're forbidden from eating an animal that would have been considered unclean because it's just roadkill, basically. All right. This is the purpose. God expects dignity, respect, generosity towards him and honoring of his authority and the people he places in authority. Leonardtown Baptist Church, I pray that we will demonstrate a general attitude of respect and holiness Dignity pervasive among our people. In 2022 terms, I think that means we're good Christian employees, good citizens, respectable, honest in our dealings, generous in our giving to God, keeping ourselves from worldliness, because this kind of respect matters to God. And then finally, we're going to look at the first nine verses of chapter 23, where we learn this idea about justice being blind. Justice is blind. These verses, in many ways, are a further explanation of the ninth commandment, that we should not bear false witness against our neighbor. Remember, the book of the covenant gives case laws in the social, historic, and redemptive setting of Israel of how to apply the Ten Commandments. And these, in verses 1 through 9 of 23, deal primarily with the ninth commandment. We read this together. You must not spread a false report Do not join the wicked to be a malicious witness. I want to pause right there. One person has said this. Respect for the truth is the most precious possession a person can have. Respect for the truth is a possession of sorts. And it's the most precious you can have. Some of you here need to write that down. Some of you have been struggling to tell the truth. But the fact is, without honesty, your life will end up amounting to nothing but wickedness in the end. Respect for the truth is the most precious possession a person can have. Verse 2, you must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. Do not testify in a lawsuit and go along with the crowd to pervert justice. In our day, social media has convicted more people in the court of public opinion than anyone can count. Listen, just because the crowd says it's right or just because the crowd says it's wrong doesn't mean the crowd is correct. You kids who are in school, listen up. 
One pastor I read about this said, this verse is one that you should memorize. When everyone at school is making fun of that one kid nobody likes. When all your friends in high school or college say, let's go out drinking on a Friday night, and your parents can give you 10,000 more examples. Just because the crowd's doing it doesn't mean to go along with it. You must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. That's a good word. That's a whole word right there. That's a whole sermon. Look at verse 3. This is all so good. I could have preached sermons on verse 1, verse 2. Parents would have been amen to me left and right. Amen. (laughs) But we have to keep on going. In verse 3, we see this. Don't show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Now, this catches us kind of odd. Because we tend to think rich people get preferential treatment in the courts, don't we? That kind of thinking can prevail so much that we begin to think that judgment is just just because the poor person was exonerated or whatever. That they couldn't possibly have committed a crime. But justice should be blind. You can't show favoritism to a poor person in court. He has to be treated according to justice. We're going to come around to the other side of that coin in just a minute. Read in verses 4 through 6 and self-reflect now. Verses 4 through 6 provoke us to self-reflection. This is huge. It says in verse 4, If you come across your enemy's stray ox, your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. But Pastor Jason, I don't like him. I don't like her. It's not my fault their ox is missing. I'm sorry, doesn't matter. You got to help them. That's what scripture says is justice. Verse five, if you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying helpless under its load and you want to refrain from helping it, you must help the poor donkey. Somebody help the donkey, please, all right? (laughs) But I'm not actually hurting the guy. I'm not actually hurting her. I'm just choosing not to help him right now. It's all good Samaritan story, isn't it? I'm just choosing not to engage in their problems right now. We are really good at self-justification, aren't we? But if we start treating friends one way and our enemies a different way, we end up bending morality and our justice is essentially a consequentialist ethic. That means the ends justify the means. God cares about the means too. We must help in these situations, even if they're our enemies. Now, if we're concerned that the Bible only cared about rich people from verse 3, in swoops verse 6, and let me just add, it's in a perfect chiastic form. If you've been with me for a couple years now, you know a chiasm is an X, and so it has some symmetry to it. It's centering verses 4 through 6. It's creating a frame from verse 3 to verse 6, and it's setting off verses 4 and 5. But verse 6 says, you must not deny justice to a poor person among you in a lawsuit. In other words, you see the Bible strikes a perfect balance, reminding us justice is blind. Nobody should be treated any differently because of who they are or how much they own or how much they're oppressed and downtrodden. That whole kind of Marxist ideology of the more oppressed you are, the more you should get favoritism is not biblical. This says justice is blind. If they're poor or they're rich, doesn't matter. You don't treat anybody with favoritism. You treat them according to justice and the law. 
We keep reading in verse 7. Stay far away from a false accusation. Do not kill the innocent and the just because I will not justify the guilty. More on that in God's justice in just a moment when we close. Look with me to verse 8. You must not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and corrupts the words of the righteous. Sometimes we don't even know we're being bribed. Sometimes we have to be very cautious to understand what's happening and the motives of what's happening behind a gift we receive or a favoritism we're given. You never know when what seemed like an innocent gift is really a cunning ploy to buy your corrupted favor and judgment. There's a whole Dennis the Menace episode about that. (laughs) You can see the kind of TV we watch. Dennis and the kids are going to be the courtroom for uh, Mr. Wilson in a civil case that he's under. And so he starts trying to give them cake and give them money or whatever, and they figure it out eventually, and it doesn't end well for Mr. Wilson. So if that comes to mind when you read verse 8 of chapter 23, just remember, don't take a bribe. Even if you don't understand what's happening, you might be being tricked, so you got to be cautious there. And then the Lord explains in verse 9, and this is important, you must not oppress a resident alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be a resident alien, because you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. God's like to his people, he's like, you of all people groups should know what it's like to be a foreigner and to be mistreated. So don't mistreat others. Don't prevent others from receiving justice just because they don't look like you, they don't talk like you, and they don't come from your tribe. There is so much richness in God's law for us today, isn't there? But as we close today, what I want to do is meditate on one simple truth that we began with. The last several verses in the book of Exodus reminded us that we tend to want to help our friends, but we're quick to let our enemies suffer under their own misfortune, under their own set of circumstances without rushing in to help them out. In the case of personal property, the Bible teaches us you can't just ignore private property laws when it's convenient for you as a means to get back to your enemy. But what I want us to think about today as we close is the way God treated us when we were his enemies. Because we truly did deserve the penalty for our rebellion and the penalty for our sin. And God is in a position to execute perfect justice since his character, his motives, and his goals are always holy. And we read in verse 7, he cannot justify the guilty. So what did God do? God did not circumvent justice. He executed the perfect justice out of the abundant riches of his grace and his compassion that we read about today while we were sinners. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, in one of the greatest paragraphs in all of Scripture, Romans 3, 21 through 26, that God is just and the justifier of the one who places his faith in Jesus. God is just because he has dealt with the penalty of sin. He does so by receiving the blood of his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. It satisfies his wrath towards us and the justice we deserve to receive. 
So we can say with Paul, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. So God's justice is upheld, but his compassion and grace, as the hymn says, was greater than all of our sin. Friend, if you're here today and you've never done so, I invite you to receive that free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ and the blood he shed on Calvary for your sins. Repent of your sins today and be saved. You say, what does repentance look like? Well, in what we've read today, the biblical character that would come to mind is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a thief. He was cheating the tax code and keeping some for himself. And he had robbed a lot from people. And repentance for Zacchaeus was restitution. He showed his repentance by giving back what he had taken times four or five, I think. It was, he overabundantly gave back in his restitution for what he had done. Now, some of you, maybe you're not thieving cows these days or stealing other people's taxes. But for you, repentance would mean doing something like apologizing, confessing, restoring a relationship, getting rid of some bookmarked websites that you know you shouldn't be looking at. Repent of your sins and be saved. However great and varied your sins may be, I want you to know the compassionate Savior is ready to receive anyone who will repent and put their trust in his name today. And then Christians, if you're here today, the call of response to me for this is simply this. Demonstrate love of neighbor by seeking justice for everyone. Demonstrate compassion to vulnerable folks around you and recall with gratitude how we ourselves were once resident aliens in Egypt, so to speak. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved in our sins, but God delivered us. And so we, in turn, should be the most merciful, most gracious, and most compassionate people possible because of the mercy shown toward us.